If you have your Bibles this morning, if you turn to Psalm 130, which is found on page 518 in our P Bibles. Luther refers to this as a very Pauline psalm. One of the benefits of being able to preach um, is that I get to choose the passage. And this is one of my favorite passages. So, Verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who, can, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. Let us pray. Father, we pray now that you would continue to show us Jesus through this text. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. If you recall last Sunday, I ended my sermon with a plea for us to always run with Jesus, run to Jesus. That has for a long time kind of been my rally cry for our troubles and our fears, our doubts, and even my own personal sins. But it got me thinking, how practical is it to run to Jesus and to lay everything on him? Would it be better for me to come up here and give you a list of things to do in order for you to live a better life? Maybe to encourage you to do so your family could have a better life? Or maybe something that you can do that could make your life, the life of your neighbors, better as well. Could we just encourage you to just pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps and move on? Better yet, fight on, fight the good fight. For a long time, has been that that has been my rally cry. For some of you, I imagine that's it's the same for you as well. Kind of just to dust yourself off and keep trying again and again. But does it work? Does he draw you out of the depths of despair? Does it deal with your sin and the guilt and the shame that eats away at you? Does it dig deep in your, into your heart and bring those issues to light and speak and bring you hope? No. I tell you, from personal, personally, that it does not. A lot of times we may look on the outside like we have it all together, but inside we're scratching away for mercy and for forgiveness. And this is kind of where we find ourselves this morning in this passage. The psalmist is in, deep, is in a deep pit of despair. He's looking upward for a way out. And in the end, it's not on his own spirit, by his own spiritual bootstraps that draw him safe to safety. Instead, it is resting in the hope that the Lord will move to him 
to redeem him and bring about forgiveness for him. And that is our hope for this this morning as well. So as we look through the progression of the psalmist in Psalm 130, there are three points that I want us to focus on. I want us to see the weight of our sin, the weight of his sin, the need to confess, and finally the confidence that we can have that the Lord will forgive. So those are our three points. In verse 1, we see that the psalmist starts out using terms that give insight into there is some form of eternal battle that is waging on within him. We're not quite sure what that exact sin is. We're not sure if someone has harmed him, if someone is bringing charges against him. But what we can be sure is that there are some major heart issues going on here. And he needs mercy. So when the psalmist writes out, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He's pointing out that this weight of my sin is so great and so burdensome that all I can do, all he can do, is cry out for the Lord who he feels has rejected him. This is the situation that we're in this morning. And this idea of being in depths kind of gives me, uh, or brings to mind one of my fears. I've kind of shared with you that I'm, I'm afraid of the dark, right? Well, here's another glimpse of my fears of who I am. Um, somebody told me the other day that I'm, I'm very open about my struggles, and so I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but uh, here's another one. Uh, I had this strange fear of sinkholes. I don't know if you do. With all this rain, you probably will have this strange fear of sinkholes. Because you, you never really know when they're going to hit. Um, I mean, a few years ago, there was this guy. He was reported, on, Nova did this special about this, this guy who was one day just laying in his bed. And all of a sudden, this sinkhole just opened up and he was gone. And there's this one sinkhole in Guatemala City that has measured 60 feet across and 30 stories into the ground. It's kind of scary, right? And I actually did some research just to, with all this rain going on, just to make sure that, um, that my, my house is pretty safe. Um, but most scholars would tell you, or most, I guess, people who study the ground, would tell you that it's very uncommon. But unless you live in Florida, there's a lot of sinkholes in Florida. But it, it's kind of scary to think about it, right? Um, And then verse 1, I kind of get this idea, I I see in this passage that the psalmist, when he's referring to the weight of his sin, he's kind of looking up as if he's in a sinkhole. That the burden of his sin pressing on him is so bad that he's, he's looking up and there's no way out. He's devoid of light. He's unable to climb out on his own. That all he can do is cry out and plead for the Lord to move, to help. As one commentator puts it, he says this, The word mercy in verse 2 presupposes a servant-master relationship in which the servant, who is the psalmist in this passage, is pleading for the master for favor. Favor to move in his direction to bring him mercy. 
Have you ever felt that way regarding your sin? That the sin and guilt is so heavy upon you that you feel like God is alien to you? Or that you're down in a sinkhole and all you can do is just barely look up and see a tad bit of light? Have you felt like God has rejected you because of your sin? Turned his back on you? Let me ask you this other question. Do you remember that moment when Jesus started making sense to you? Do you remember when you began to believe? You ask me, well, what, what do these questions mean? I'll get to that in just a minute. But for me, I kind of felt this experience in middle school. I remember one morning when I was sitting in the church pew, the pastor delivered a passionate sermon Kind of what I'm doing this morning, hopefully it's passionate. And he was so concerned about his congregation coming to terms with that they are sinners and that they are in dire need of a Savior. And that for me was the moment when I felt the heaviness of my sin. Later that afternoon, I remember meeting the pastor and asking him, Pastor Powell, what's going on? What's this feeling that I'm experiencing? Why do I feel so guilty? And he explained to me what it meant. And at that time, he was kind of very vague, but he did tell me that just confess your sins and believe in Jesus. Pray this prayer, and it'll make sense to you. So I did. And I would say that's the first time that I began to believe the gospel. But in writing this sermon, I was looking back and thinking back just through that, that experience. And I forgot there's something that he failed to do. And that was to prepare me for how to live a Christian life. I went to him telling about this huge burden of sin, and he told me what to do, the prayer to this prayer. But then he didn't tell me what to do about the burden that continues. That the weight that continues as I live the Christian life. So I struggled throughout my high school. In my first few years of college, I struggled with this whole idea of sanctification. I didn't have a clue of what it was. So I kept running to Jesus all the time. I kept thinking in the back of my head that I was not forgiven. That every time I did sin, that I would have to remember all my sins and ask for forgiveness again. And so again, I had this spiritual bootstrap mentality or a spiritual bootstrap approach to the way I live my life. I made it my mission to weed out my sins on my own because, again, I didn't want to deal with that guilt, so I felt like I could deal with my sins. If I can't deal with the guilt, I'll deal with the sins. So I took it upon myself to weed out my sins. I thought I had it under control. And on the outside, it looked that way, but inside, I was a mess. Until finally the summer of 2002, when I was, atten- I was serving as a youth counselor at a camp. And I remember sharing some of my concerns with my old youth pastor about my inability to deal with my sins on my own. I explained to him my strategies, my discipleship models, 
that I was implementing into my life, thinking that I could do it, thinking that they could come alongside and maybe assist me, but ultimately I was the one who had to make the mental decision not to sin. And I told him their strategies, and I remember he looked at me and said, well, did they work? I told him, well, no, not really. Then he said, the reason why they haven't worked is because you haven't given your sins to Jesus. I was too busy trying to fix them myself without realizing that Jesus is the only one in the business of fixing and is capable of fixing. And I think that's important for us this morning as we look at these two verses. So we need to realize that the psalmist, is a, is, is, he's, he's dealing with his heart issue. He's recognizing his heart issue. He's recognizing his sin in the right way. And he's not trying to fix it himself. But instead he cries out. Out of a sense of brokenness and mercy and pleading for the Lord to intervene and fix him. For he is the one that is broken. Listen to me, the weight of your sin is always too much to, for you to bear, believers. That is why it's so great we can cast it on him. Because he is capable to bear it, to bear it and able to bear it. So after realizing the weight of his sin, he kind of progresses and he acknowledges his need for God to rescue him, but then he breaks into confession. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? So by stating this, the psalmist is making the point that no one is blameless before God. We all have something in common. We're all sinners, right? Paul kind of picked up on this in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one, no understand, no one, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. So the psalmist does not try to paint a rosy picture here about his situation. Instead, he's open and he's up front, up front with God about his brokenness and his need for him to intercede. But you see, when we, when we think of confession, it's always an interesting component to worship, I think, in church. I, I think not just in church, but also in our, our daily lives. For some of us, when we do the, the prayer of confession, it can kind of come across as maybe unappealing. Maybe it's unhelpful. Maybe it's confusing. Especially with some of the words that we say. We do not... In the, the, especially this morning in church, it may not address, the, address a specific sin that we're struggling with as believers. But I think sometimes in our own daily lives, as we, if we follow the James passage where it says we're called to confess our sins to one another, we can allow confession to become a way of gossiping. And then we have to confess about that. And this is a story that kind of illustrates that. There were four preachers who meet, who met one day for a, friend, a friendly gathering. 
And during one of the conversations, one of the preachers says to the group, you know, people come to us and they pour out their hearts. They confess certain sins and needs. So I think we need to do the same. Because confession is good for the soul. So in due time, all four agreed. So one confessed that he liked to go to the movies. It would sneak off, went away from his church to go to a movie. The second confessed that he likes to smoke cigars. And the third one confessed that he liked to play cards. And when it came to the fourth one, he wouldn't confess. And the others pressed him saying, come on, you can, we confessed ours. What is your secret? What is your vice? And then finally he answered, it is gossiping. And I can't hardly wait to get out of here. When we think about confessing, though, it's, it's meant to cause us to acknowledge our helplessness and our need of God. And that's what we see here in Psalm 130. The psalmist is coming clean. He's, he's opening his heart to the deeper sins that he's struggling with. But notice that there's something else that he's confessing here. Not only is he confessing to God his sin, but he's also confessing that God is the only one that can deal with them. And how does he deal with sins? He forgives them. Look at verse 4. But you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So God's ability to grant forgiveness and reconciliation for sinners does not weaken his ability to pass judgment, but instead he is to be feared because he loves to forgive. So as a believer, think of it this way. Can you think of a sin that God is not willing to forgive? Can you? Some of you may say blasphemy. But if you're a true believer, would you reject Christ? So the kind of that's off the table. Murder. We know a lot of examples in Scripture where God was able to forgive those who murder. Suicide. Theft. Maybe pride, jealousy, selfishness. All of those are capable of being forgiven. If we confess and turn to Jesus. And this is why God is to be feared. Because even the most devastating sin that you can think of can be forgiven. So fear here is a godly fear. And his character is to forgive. If God's character is to forgive then he can forgive all sins, all types of sins, because that's who he is. But notice that God is not just in the business of forgiving sin. He's also in the business of forgetting sin. Look back at verse 3 when he uses the phrase, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... He's using a rhetorical question to point out that God does not keep a record of the sins of those who seek his forgiveness. And this is good news for us, right? 
This is a part of the, the, stand, the, the psalm where we should be rejoicing, saying amen, because we know without a doubt that when we take our sins to Jesus, we know that we are forgiven and that our sins are no longer remembered because they are forgiven. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And he casts them into the deepest part of the ocean where they cannot see the light of day. Because that's who God is. This past week, we were taking our kids through Sally Lord Jones's devotion called Thoughts That Make Your Heart Sing. And I highly recommend that devotion. But she nails it with this take on, uh, on Psalms. On this particular day, she titled it Far, Far Away. And she writes, when God says he forgives you, he is saying, I've sent all the wrongs you ever did far, far away from me. I've hurled them away where no one can ever look on them, not even me. Where is the Father's place you've ever traveled? God has sent your sins farther. What's the Father's place you can imagine? Galaxies? 12 billion light years away, God sends your sins even farther away than that. You won't ever see them again. Sally Lloyd Jones, along with the psalmist, paints this beautiful picture that God is not only in the business of forgiving, but also in forgetting as well. Forgetting our sins. The psalmist finish out, finishes the psalm with confidence. He is confident that the Lord would not only bring about forgiveness and redemption, but also that as he waits, he's going to bring him hope. He is longing for the day when redemption is finally fulfilled. It's kind of like he's a changed man now. If you follow the progression of the psalm, this is the part where he kind of has his aha moment and he changes. It becomes real to him. Verse 1, we see that he starts off, he has his deep despair, his sin, his heart has been revealed, and he's crying out for help. But in these verses, verse 5 and on, it's kind of like he's had a taste of forgiveness, and it's sweet to him. And now he wants to pass it on to Israel, to the nation, to the people. Look at what he says in verse 7. It says, O to Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord here is steadfast love. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. So the message that he is calling for Israel here in this passage is to take heed And do as he did in the previous verses. Know that you are a sinner. Confess your sins to the one who can forgive. And wait for him to carry it out. Wait for him to bring about redemption. Wait for him to bring it about. Wait for him to work to redeem you. And we look at this passage, we say the same thing. We know that when we sin... We confess, 
We know that we're called to wait, but our wait is not as long-lasting as that of Israel. Why? Because of Christ. You see, what the psalmist is doing in this passage, he's saying, you can wait and you can hope because one day redemption will finally be fulfilled in the, in the person of Christ who is to come. But this side of the cross, we don't have to wait. We can confess and repent and believe in forgiveness today. There is a sense that there is a form of waiting for all to be dealt with in Christ. We wait not for forgiveness, but we wait to when all sin will be completely dealt with. And everything's made right when Christ returns. So if you're in Christ Jesus, all of your sins have been dealt with. We no longer have to wait for redemption as the psalmist does. Your past, your present, your future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. All the guilt is covered. All the shame is covered. All your failures and imperfections are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is good news for us. So how then do we approach this psalm? We approach it with for three ways. We approach it with a sense of self-awareness, Approach it in awe that we are forgiven. They approach it in a sense of letting it model the way that we forgive others. This psalm reveals to us that though our sins have ultimately been dealt with in Christ, there's a struggle with sin that remains. We must be diligent to examine our hearts to see what sin to see the sin that entangles us and confess it and to repent of it and to rest in the work of Christ, knowing that he has already dealt with it. We can do that as believers. Don't pretend that you have your life and your sin under your control, for it's not. Instead, rest in the confidence and awe of knowing that despite of your struggle with sin, You are forgiven, and all of it is washed away by the blood of Christ. But only that, let your experience with being forgiven and having your sins being forgotten be the model for how you relate to others. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? How the master showed pity on the servant and forgave him of all of his debt. And what did the servant going do? Went to collect his money. Found those and those who refused to pay them. What did he do? He put them in prison until they should pay their debt. 
The the master responded to him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And and I showed you mercy. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to those who 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 haven't paid you back? Remember the final verse? Where Jesus commands them and says, Just as your father has forgiven you. Shouldn't you forgive your brother as well? Brothers and sisters, my challenge to you this morning is that let us be quick to forgive and quick to forget those who sin against you. But that is the model that the Lord has laid out for us, right? Right? If he is so quick to forgive us and to forget all of our sins, shouldn't we model that in our relationships? So I begin by saying, hopefully, and I answered why I end every sermon with running to Jesus. And I do that because if we run to Jesus and cast all of our cares and concerns on him, he's able to bear it. He's able to forgive. He's able to forget. And that's good news for us. So my challenge to you to this, my final challenge is this. Whatever issues you're struggling with, whatever sins you're struggling with, run to Jesus. Let us pray. Father, sometimes it's hard to be open, as the psalmist is in this passage. It's hard to be open to our sins. It's hard to be open to the idea of crying out for help. Because it's so easy we want to do things on our own. But we can't. Father, by your Spirit that's working in us, Father, calls us to continue, continually to run to Jesus every day. There we will find forgiveness. And there we will find the confidence of knowing that our sins have been dealt with and that they are forgotten. We're praising Christ's name. Amen.